politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our rights, our life, liberty, and property, and everything else that matters here at CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Hurwitz, back in the house today for Tuesday, June 27th. And folks, you know, we've talked a lot the last couple of years about medical freedom, about literally your most sacred rights to breathe, walk freely, bodily autonomy. That's really my second book, Rise of the Fourth Reich, co-authored with Steve Dace, I find myself going back now as we talk about more immigration-oriented stuff and judicial supremacism and the mixture of the two. By the way, there's some bad Supreme Court rulings recently I want to get to, uh, maybe tomorrow. But I'm going back to my first book, Stolen Sovereignty. Next week, we celebrate the Declaration of Independence. You have a right to life, liberty, property, but also the right to the consent of the governed. Governance by the consent of the governed. So we are told that anyone in the world could invade our society, unilaterally assert jurisdiction, unilaterally obtain redress in the courts, access to the courts, access to rights, access to accommodations, and drop a baby and that baby is a citizen. So I want to deviate a little bit from you know, kind of the day-to-day news, talk about something a little bit more fundamental with, you know, two presidential candidates, Trump and DeSantis, again, pledging to get rid of anchor baby policies where you automatically grant citizenship to any organism uh, born on this soil, no matter how it got there, even illegally, even breaking in against the consent of the governed, against our sovereign laws governing our sovereignty and the absurdity of it. You know, and all these legal scholars and a lot of these Fed sock, phony conservative scholars are on the other side. I want to just rehash a basic argument, um, again, with DeSantis announcing his immigration plan, as we talked about yesterday. And then I want to have on Jessica Vaughn from Center for Immigration Studies discussing how we reclaim our sovereignty. You know, this notion that we're just, like, helpless. There's nothing we can do to stop people from taking our birthright uh, you know, where things stand, not just at the border, but interior enforcement, what governors should be doing, because we cannot wait until 2025 to reclaim our sovereignty. Now, in that vein, you cannot wait until 2025 to clean your gun. A lot of you are get lazy as gun owners cleaning your dirty guns with all that carbon on there from firing thousands of rounds, assuming you can afford it these days. I recommend our friends at Barrel Buddy rather than using a boar snake or these little, you know, almost like tissue-like things that just disintegrate in the barrel and get cut on all the metal and then it becomes a safety problem. Barrel Buddy is a solid cartridge that compresses to fill the interior of your gun's barrel, making sure you get full 360 degree cleaning action with the right compression you just pop it through it gets the carbon out it really works beautifully and then you kind of press it against the other parts of the gun that you typically should clean all the middle parts at least and then you could lube it as well with with a barrel buddy you get about 50 of them in one package for 14.99 if you go to barrelbuddy.com today so 
you know, I use three or four per cleaning, so that pretty much will cover you at least for a year or two, unless you're a real avid shooter. Uh, but it doesn't cost much. It doesn't take much to be a responsible gun owner. Go to BarrelBuddy.com. Don't allow your guns to go dirty. So we are told by the system that there's this notion anyone could just come invade, uh, drop a baby, and they're a citizen. And even prospectively, there's nothing we can do to stop that unless we change the Constitution. And it is absurd. It would take about two, three hours to deliver a proper lecture on this. But I just want to cover some of the basics going back five to seven, eight years ago when we would do this on the show a lot. We went through this. It's a chapter in my book. And I just want to go go over some j- just some some basics here. Some basics of what birthright citizenship is isn't what we're trying to accomplish what I think both Trump and, and DeSantis are trying to do, although Trump promised it and didn't do it, so I trust the latter more, but I'm not getting involved in the politics of that today, more the legalities. So the 14th Amendment says that anyone you know born in this country to a parent here, quote, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a natural-born citizen. So... Obviously, it doesn't just say you're born, like you fly in on a, on a you know, drone or something against our will, and you drop a baby, or you have an invading army where the general's wife is pregnant, drops it, oh, you're born, no, 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 it's and, and is a qualifier, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Now, you cannot unilaterally assert jurisdiction. You have to be accepted into a society. That is a right of the people, because if, if, if you expand that right to any individual in the world, that means you're not a sovereign nation. That means that you are not free from external control, which is the definition of sovereignty. You are subject to external control because you are subject to the whims of any of the you know people in Somalia, Tajikistan, Mexico, or Venezuela. Wherever they, they come in, nine months pregnant, boom, drop a baby, you're done. No one would have... Even if it didn't say end subject to the jurisdiction thereof, if it just said born in America, you're a citizen, you still would never interpret it like Amelia Bedelia. It means you're allowed in, okay, then then fine. That's that's what it would, would mean. Now, what what people are referring to with birthright citizenship court ruling, I want to be very clear about what it is and what it isn't. What they're referring to is the 1898 opinion from Justice Horace Gray very activist, radical, wrong opinion that legally is wrong, but politically is not offensive in my mind. Um, Wong Kim Ark, where it conferred a right to, it, it said that the 14th Amendment was creating a constitutionally mandated floor of a right to natural-born citizenship to immigrant parents written into the 14th Amendment. Very radical, not true, and we can go through 50 million reasons why not. I've written on it before, written my book, but it's academic. None of us, as a matter of policy, whether the Constitution mandates it or not, have a problem with our government giving citizenship to children of those who are permanently legally domiciled in the country. Okay, so what we would call an LPR, a legal permanent resident, a green card holder, pursuant to our modern-day kind of like post-1952 immigration system, what we call a green card holder, we have no problem, you know, giving that. Even people like myself that are more restrictionist, um, the, you, we might want to limit our 
scope of legal immigration, but whatever we invite in, we want to invite in properly. And we don't want to create a permanent underclass just for nothing. And all right, we're someone you want, we're someone that the society wants to come in, you come in, and we don't we don't have to wait until you yourself become a citizen. Your child, fine, he's great, he's an American, that's fine. Even though the, the Constitution clearly doesn't mean that. Um it is and, and there's a tons of things I can go through, but but I, I don't want to go so so much into the first tranche. Birthright citizenship for legal immigrants, because I don't oppose it. Um, but just I'll just say one thing. When it says all the con- during the congressional debate, um, Senator Turnbull, Senator Jacob Howard, they all talked about someone who swears off all allegiance subject to the full jurisdiction, complete and full jurisdiction is what they use. What that's referring to is from 1795 to 1952. So, so during that period of the 14th Amendment, um, the way our immigration system worked was it was a two-step process. So you'd come here and kind of be admitted you know, at least once we started regulating it, 1870s, 1880s, and you'd be admitted, and unless you were a public charge or, you know, had disease or they didn't like you for whatever reason, they felt you were a, quote, imbecile, pauper, what, um, forget the terminology, uh, feeble-minded. These are term, terms they use in statute. Uh, then, then you were turned back. But if you were admitted, right, automatically you're kind of like the equivalent of what we would say a legal permanent resident. Um, and, and you could stay here. Then there was a process that was in between, actually, an, an LPR and a citizen. We don't really have that in the current system. And that was called, you would file a an intent, a declaration of intent. I want to fill, I want to apply for naturalization. Now, from that moment of declaration of intent, it, it went back and forth based on statute over history. We, we loosened it. We strengthened it. But about, usually, you statutorily have three years. Three years you would have to wait from the declaration of intent. So back then, you would actually do two oaths of allegiance. Depending on the time, there's slightly different language. You would have an oath swearing off all titles of nobility, all allegiance to your foreign country at your declaration of intent. And then three to five years later, when you actually were approved for naturalization. So what the best understanding of what the 14th Amendment means is that it means, even if it's going to mean that an immigrant, meaning not someone who is already naturalized, but someone who's still in immigrant status, his kid now born is an automatic U.S. citizen, it would only be an immigrant on the level of someone who roughly filed the Declaration of Intent, but that would always be subject to congressional regulation and immigration statutes of what level that is that Congress wants to confer. Not that there's a ironclad mandated floor, but the notion that any LPR, any guy that, okay, you, you know, you could stay here, but, you know, we have no intent yet of making you a citizen, that, <coughs> that your kid is a citizen, that is actually not mandated by the Constitution. It, um, Justice Gray himself was going back on an opinion he himself wrote 12 years before unexplicably um the dissent by justice fuller is much stronger and just academically it's it's not true it's bull and i don't think we should be governed by that but as a matter of policy none of us have a problem with that our problem is granting citizenship to those who violate our sovereignty and come here against our intent against our consent, 
And then to a, a lesser degree, but also those here on temporary visas, you have this birth tourism with Russian and Chinese wealthy people coming in on a tourist visa, and maybe even a student visa. You could, you could debate this stuff, but you're not permanently domiciled. Those children should not be citizens, and indeed they are not mandated, not just by the 14th Amendment, but even Justice Gray's Wong Kim Ark opinion. And I want to just flesh that out for maybe 10, 15 minutes before we bring on our guest. But first, we're sponsored today by our friends at Patriot Mobile. Um, speaking of un-American activities, Patriot Mobile is the only American American wireless provider. Christian, conservative wireless provider. They offer dependable nationwide coverage. Everyone's like, how do I boycott all these woke companies? Well, AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile are the worst. I mean, they're at the nexus of WEF, China, surveillance, woke funding. So when you switch to Patriot Mobile, you support free speech, you support religious freedom, you support the sanctity of life. Go to patriotmobile.com slash CR uh, or call them at 878-PATRIOT. I guarantee you, you'll get an English speaker on the line. Um, here's the deal. You don't have to change your number. You don't have to change your phone. It's easy. Get free activation today with offer code CR. Ask about their coverage guarantee while you're there. Again, go to patriotmobile.com slash CR. Call 878-PATRIOT. Activation code CR. So here's basically where we are. Here's basically where we are. Wong Kim Ark made it that basically every immigrant, they have a kid, they get a, um, they get a citizenship document, automatic. So, and, and, and indeed, you know, once Wong Kim Ark was ruled upon, that's, that's kind of what we followed. Now, back then, you didn't have a lot of illegal immigration, meaning you could technically have an illegal immigrant, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, because you did have um, people that were inadmissible, okay? And maybe they were, you know, before it took time to get a steamship back, they're staying on our soil, and maybe they could have a kid, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But generally, you didn't really have, because of communication, because of transportation, you didn't have many people running over a border, overstaying visa type of thing. It just, the way our system worked was because of transportation and communication, that's how you kind of you came um, it was mainly coordinated through state departments where you invited people or said, okay, now's a good time to come. Now's not a good time to come. You really have to have consent from the exporting country as well. And that's how it worked. You know, you weren't going to kind of come here and come and go and come and go. Once you're here, you're here. It was hard to go back and forth. So we didn't have too much illegal immigration. So, you know, obviously once you hold that any or, or temporary visa holders – for that matter. So once you're here, you're stand chances are you're an LPR. So it became a standard practice that just in the hospitals, the nurses, you know, the hospitals would get from the Social Security Administration, um, or whatever you had issuing those documents before the nineteen thirties, and they would just pass it around to anyone born here. And no one opposed that. But it wasn't a legal policy, it was kind of just you know, laziness. We didn't bother to verify people because there wasn't so much of a need for that. You go towards the mid part of the century, and especially getting to sixties, seventies, eighties. Okay, you know that's when you start to have a number of cross land border migration, illegal immigration from Mexico, and over time this became a bigger problem. 
And the best, Professor John Eastman, I think, traces it back to sometime in the late 60s was the first time a memo was written like, yeah, just, just give it to just give it to them type of thing, where there was official policy kind of codifying that. But again, there was no imperative to do that. Um, it wasn't until this became a very self-evident problem. Really, in the 19, I want to say between 1990 and 1993, when people like Democrat Harry Reid, Democrats, Republicans, started introducing legislation saying, no, 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 wait, wait a minute. We need to get rid of giving this automatic citizenship to children of illegal aliens. This is becoming too much of a problem. Right? Until then, it wasn't that much of a problem. Now the scope of stolen sovereignty was massive. So they started giving it to them. I mean, they started writing legislation to, to take it away. It was at that point that the left created what I call retroactive anchor baby jurisprudence to retroactively try to put it into the 14th Amendment and say, Wong Kim Mark does this. And basically, they dug up in the stupid Plyler v. Doe 1983 opinion by John Brennan, which in itself needs to be overturned, obviously. It's unconstitutional. That somehow there's a constitutional mandate for states to give K-12 education to illegal aliens. And he writes in a footnote, he, he talks about birthright citizenship, he quotes Wong Kim Ark, and he basically says, it shouldn't matter, matter whether you're here legally or illegally, you're born here, you're born here. That's all that has ever happened. There's never been any direct Supreme Court ruling. It's a footnote of dictum in, in, in Brennan's ruling. So they retroactively dug that up, and now they want to say, oh, this is like settled. It's like, like God's gift to the world. You would be overturning the most settled thing. Not true. In fact, Wong Kim Ark explicitly precludes this explicitly precludes, and this is the point I want to get at. Again, we could talk about how Wong Kim Ark is garbage, and it is, but that's fine. Any legal immigrant you want to give it to, a legal permanent resident, that is fine. But it explicitly, he explicitly qualifies it. You could look it up. Wong Kim Ark, do a word search on what I'm telling you. When he says that there's an automatic grant of citizenship to children of those immigrants living here, living here, he says, quote, so long as they are permitted by the United States to reside here. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's right there. I've never understood this debate. He literally says that. Also, Gray used the term of art, domiciled, 12 times throughout the opinion. Domiciled is a term of art. When defining the scope of the citizenship clause and what is covered, only a parent who is domiciled here. There's 130 years of case law describing exactly what domicile means and doesn't mean in the context of immigration and conferring rights and due process and certainly citizenship for their children. Gray himself, six years earlier in Nishimura, the U.S., so that would be 1892, explained exactly what domicile does not mean. So basically, you had what was called the Chinese Exclusion Acts at the time. So Chinese were automatically deemed, so to speak, illegal Im immigrants. If you're caught here, you have to be sent back because you're inadmissible simply for being Chinese. Um, that was one of the categories of inadmissible. Whether you agree with it, disagree with it, that's just what it was. Um, certainly a nation has the right to do that. Um, you can't discriminate against Americans, but you could, but you could discriminate 
in terms of admissibility of a foreign national. There's no affirmative right to immigrate. So um, Justice Gray literally said, it is not within the province of the judiciary to order that foreigners who have never been naturalized nor acquired any domicile or residence within the United States nor even been admitted into the country pursuant to law shall be permitted to enter in opposition to the constitutional and lawful measures of the legislative and executive branches of the national government. And basically, just to cut, cut the, you know, long story short, for for 140 years now, and capstoning with John Roberts' opinion in Trump v. Hawaii, it's something called the plenary power doctrine. That, that the political branches of government have the right, it's inherent in sovereignty, to, to exclude anyone they want, any you know, non-citizen from coming into the country. It could be a good reason, it could be a bad reason, because there cannot be any limitation, there cannot be any judicial oversight or judicial interference or judicial review, because that would mean there's no sovereignty. It's, it's, it's deeply rooted maxim in international law, in sovereign nations, in the right of a society. You can't force yourself upon a society. So the language they use is, even if you got across undetected or you're allowed temporarily to stay, you know, like, because there was a case in Kaplan v. Todd in, in the you know, in 1920 where it was hard to get a steamship back. So the or world, I think it was like 1917, World War I broke out. So, all right, you could temporarily stay here. But it's literally, physically, as if you're not on the soil. It's as if you're standing outside the boundary. It's settled law, 140 years of uninterrupted case law. The left wants to get rid of it, but Roberts has affirmed it You know, recently. We do have a majority in the Supreme Court um, affirming that, that that's it. Done. So you can't tell me, meaning even if it didn't say end subject to the jurisdiction thereof, and even if Justice Gray and Wong Kim Ark didn't explicitly use the language of permitted to to reside here and domiciled, which is clear, you still can never apply it to illegals because if you're here illegally, you're not here. You think you're on our soil? You're actually not. Legally, you're not on our soil because you have to be admitted. You can't unilaterally assert jurisdiction. Right? I can't squat in your home and say, I have a right to be here. And if I have a baby born there, well, I mean, this is where it's domiciled now. You're stuck with the baby. No, you got to take the baby and go. This is settled law. We could debate how far back into LPR and what type of LPR and whatever, but we're not trying to do that. But the notion that someone illegally or you are admitted with consent, but only with a condition, like a 30-day tourist visa or one-year this visa, you are not permanently domiciled. You're not an American. You don't swear off allegiance, right? That, that's what, what it says by subject to the jurisdiction thereof. All of the, during the congressional debate, they all said, you swear off allegiance. When you come here on a student visa, certainly a tourist visa, a temporary work visa, no, you have allegiance to your, your own country. Done. Justice Gray limited the scope of birthright citizenship. He used the term resident aliens who are under the allegiance and under the protection of the country. This in no way applies to illegal aliens. The point is even stronger once we understand that allegiance and protection are designed as a reciprocal relationship between citizens and the government of the civil society. 
that in turn for their allegiance, they receive protection. As the court said in Minor v. Happerset, 1874, in the context of citizenship, quote, each one of the persons associated becomes a member of the nation formed by the association. He owes it allegiance that is entitled to its protection. Allegiance and protection are in this connection reciprocal obligations. The one is a compensation for the other. Allegiance for protection and protection for allegiance. You can't force your way in. So that is the story. End of story. There is no legal case whatsoever to be made that prospectively we cannot say, now we're going to clamp down. And that's really what it is. It was born out of laziness. And and I'll give you a proof to this. Google Center for Immigration Studies, and we're going to have one of their... Uh, scholars on in a minute, Center for Immigration Studies, citizenship for diplomats. Okay, everyone agrees, nobody, even these, the anger baby jurisprudence people agree that diplomats' children aren't citizens because the whole point is they get uh, immunity, diplomatic immunity in their, you know, as a citizen of another country. If they're made a U.S. citizen, they become a super citizen getting the best of both, a U.S. citizen with immunity, to, you know, from from crimes. No one, no one agrees with that. Not a, you know, left, right, or anyone. Yet there is evidence, according to CIS, that children of diplomats have been wrongly given birth certificates. And and it, it's not anyone. It's not surprising because the nurse doesn't know. They don't have guidance on that. The the nurse in the maternity ward at a hospital, they give it out. So unless you go and say, "Oh no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not eligible," and don't fill it out. You might wind up filling it out, and you'll you'll get it. It was lax oversight. We we're just handing them out to everyone. Over time, there was a need as as our situation evolved. There was a need to enforce this, and we didn't. So the point is, yes, this can be done through executive order, because it's only being given out through executive order. There was never a statute that gave it to them. In other words, if you believe it's in the Constitution, you believe it's in the Constitution. It's not. But if you don't believe it is. There's no statute that you need to repeal. The Immigration Nationality Act just quotes the 14th Amendment. So whatever you believe that is, it is. Um, and obviously, you cannot be subject to our jurisdiction thereof by by unilaterally. I mean, it, it's the same argument with being counted into the census. Do you count an invading army in our census? It is unreal. It is the most absurd thing, and it bothers me because people don't believe in ourselves. They don't believe in our country. They don't believe in our sovereignty. And I'll tell you, a lot of Republican-appointed judges are really, and legal minds, are terrible on this issue. It's not a hard issue. It's very simple. This is what happens when you live in a time when we don't understand what fundamental rights are. When we think a person from Somalia has a fundamental right to break into our country and grab citizenship, unilaterally asserting jurisdiction, but you don't have a right as a citizen to walk freely and breathe. This is the society we live in now. But we should never give give up on our birthright. The anchor baby thing needs to stop. But that's just one part of interior enforcement. I wanted to open up this discussion a little bit more broadly. So folks, as I mentioned before, obviously we cannot wait another, gosh, year and a half before we even begin enforcing the law. 
we're literally talking about millions of people from all over the world changing our system, changing our localities. I mean, we've talked before about the school systems, the criminal justice problems we have, these places like uh, Colony Ridge in Texas. We cannot wait to do something. The reality is states are sovereign. Scalia always said that they would have never joined the union if they were told they can't enforce their own sovereignty. When you have the federal government doing what they're doing. Now, look, Congress needs to fight it. You have the budget bill. They need to defund, catch, and release. But the bottom line is it's hard to force an admin to actively do something it doesn't want to do. Uh, you could you could put a negative on a positive action. It's a lot harder to put a positive on a negative. And that is really where the states come into play. And we've seen some leadership from Florida, but we haven't seen it in too many other states. And in fact, you still have other red states where they want to give driver's licenses to illegals. They're like, Biden's blasting us at the border. He's uh, not enforcing the border. And then they say, we need driver's licenses for illegals. I never understood that. But I wanted to go through some of what we should be doing on the interior as everyone talks about the border itself, because, again, it really is our entire view of sovereignty of what illegals are entitled to. It's the legal theory behind it that really creates the problem. That's a bigger issue than the border wall. You make it clear we're a sovereign nation. You come here, we'll remove you. You don't get bennies. They won't come. It's that simple. It really is that simple. It's the magnets. That's the problem. So to discuss some of what needs to be done now, as well as perhaps by the next president, is an oldie but a goodie, Jessica Vaughn. It's been a long time since we've had her on. She's director of policy studies for the terrific Center for Immigration Studies. You could follow her at Jessica V underscore CIS on Twitter. Hey, Jessica, it's been a couple of years. Welcome back. Thank you, Daniel. Good to be back. I don't know if I like that oldie but goodie line, though. <laughs> the goody part's okay. And, I definitely am feeling like an oldie, though. <laughs> well, certainly you have the same energy. I mean, I don't know how you fight an issue for three decades, and then you see where we are today. Give us a sense, just a broad overview. You know, you've been doing this since the 90s. Um, just look at the magnitude of the fundamental change on the interior of our country. Everyone's seeing these border numbers. Could you paint a picture of what that looks like on the interior? Well, this is an unprecedented social experiment, really, um, that is happening right now with unchecked illegal immigration and high legal immigration numbers. Uh, the size of the foreign-born population is higher than ever before. And importantly, the share of our total population that the, that the immigrant population makes up is now as high as it's ever been before. But our country is not the same as it was, um, mm. you know, at the turn of the 18th to 19th century um, and the turn of the 20th century. We are a crowded country now. We are an advanced country. Our economic needs are for skilled workers. And uh, we are much more of a welfare state than we ever were before. So this is simply not sustainable. And um, it's, it's, um, it's compromising our ability to solve nearly every problem that you can think of in terms of public policy. And 
Um, you know, it's going to take a lot of work to correct what the Biden administration has done with, you know, in, in just a couple of years, more than two million new immigrant arrivals. And that's a net figure because some do go home. And in communities um, that have not experienced this before, um, one way we've recently measured it that's really interesting, I think, is in the school systems. Um, you know, there are some public school districts in the country that are more than half of the kids are from immigrant headed households, both legal and illegal. And, and I think this is a really good way to measure it because it also accounts for the U.S. born children of immigrants who are not usually counted. They're, they're not foreign born. I mean, they're U.S. citizens, but they are part of the impact and the cost of yep. illegal immigration and legal they immigration. They often speak well. another language at home. Right. So, you know, we've got places like San Jose, Los Angeles, Miami are more than half kids from immigrant households in their schools. And, so, and you know, I think this raises challenges for assimilation. I think it's, you know, there are fiscal costs to this. And, you know, at, at one point, you know, we are simply going to reach the tipping point for our ability to absorb new immigrants. And I think some of these places may already have 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 made that point that's what they want the balkanization where there's no continuity of a civilization and its traditions and history it is a lot easier to take over a civilization like that which is what they want um if i made you governor for a day and you had the ability to work with other governors uh, obviously you know on a national level it's pretty simple what needs to be done but as a governor it's a little bit harder but if I gave you the latitude, now obviously they're going to take everything to court, but being very liberal in our view of what a state can do, which we should be, not going to, not saying that you'll win in court, what would you do? What do you think the governors need to be doing to create their own demagnetization to counteract the magnetization of the federal level? Well, I first need to say you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, this, the name of the game is to demagnetize, to disincentivize uh, illegal immigration, because there's no way uh, the federal government is going to be able to deport our way out of this problem. So the idea, we know it works. It's worked, you know, over the last 30 years at certain points in time that um, people here illegally will go home on their own if there's no great benefit to being here illegally. And you know, a lot of them even have that mentality when they come. They're like, I know I can get in now. I want to get there and live there for as long as I can. And I'll probably have to go back home sometime. That's fine. I just want to make the best of this situation now. So it's not like they're all coming here, you know, to be American. They're opportunists. So that's why it's really important to um, to have a policy of trying to get illegal migrants to go home on their own because it's there's there's no point in being here. Now, what states can do? Prosecute the crimes that illegal immigrants commit and crack down on illegal employment and go after the infrastructure of um, criminal enterprises that are facilitating this illegal migration. So you, can you so describe some you, of those enterprises? Absolutely. Um, well, the first is the smugglers and traffickers who are bringing illegal migrants here to work. 
first of all, there's employers who are hiring them. And so states need to be tough on that. They don't, you don't even have to have a mandatory E-Verify law to crack down on these employers because every employer already has to verify the work authorization through documents. And, um, you know, and the employers who are hiring illegal workers are usually also committing other crimes, wage and hour violations, tax evasion, not paying their workers comp. There's all sorts of um, tools that states have at their disposal to go after these employers that more than likely are also engaging in forced labor trafficking as well, either the employer directly or the third-party labor contractors that they use to fill their um, job slots who are taking advantage of the illegal migrants and extorting them. Um, you know, as partial payment for their smuggling bill. You can use state authorities to crack down on all of that. And when you go after the employers, a lot of the magnet starts to become weaker. If if illegal immigrants can't get a job, they're not going to stay. The other thing they want is driver's licenses. That cat is out of the bag already in a lot of states. But the big, big um, thing that uh, states can go after is identity theft and identity fraud. Um, that is what many illegal migrants commit uh, when they get a job. It's what the, the crime they commit when they try to get a license in many states. Um, so and, and if you set it up so that you're going to throw the book at people who commit these kinds of crimes and not look the other way, it gives them another incentive to return home. They'd rather go home than sit in jail for having uh, used a stolen social security number or committed fraud in employment or getting a driver's license. These are all crimes already on the books in a lot of states that um, can be used to dissuade illegal immigration. Um, You know, you can, uh, I think it's interesting. We just had the Supreme court decision um, that upheld the law um, that says that encouraging illegal immigration is a crime and that it's not, um, you know, um, a protected form of free speech to encourage people to come here illegally. There's an opening for uh, people to look at prosecuting employers and the NGOs that sometimes um, help out illegal migration. Like, you know, a lot of the NGOs that are facilitating the Biden administration's catch and resettlement programs. So there are tools out there that can be used. Um, it's just, you know, states have to have the will and appropriate the money to the, um, to the relevant agencies to do this, um, as, you know, states like Florida and Texas and a few others have done. So, and, you, you know, there are some other little things that can be done as well. You don't want your law enforcement agencies handing out U visa certifications for crime victims, you know, and all sorts of other scams that are out there that allow illegal aliens to launder their status. But, um, you know, I think a lot more can be done than many states currently are doing because they keep waiting for, like, Congress to, to bail them out. Or, you know, yes. you know they're, they're scared by, um, you know, the, the ACLU and others that say they're going to sue on any measures that states take. But there's a, a lot of authorities that states have that are, are constitutional, would, are good policy and would be supported by Americans. In other words, we could have the reverse of sanctuary cities that you had under Trump 
you had the kind of blue areas were saying, hey, we're going to gum up the works. And they successfully drove down removals in their areas dramatically in places like California. So you could do the opposite. You could have in these other states, we're going to make, uh, you know, an American sanctuary from the crime and morass of illegal immigration. And even if they can't directly deport um, illegal aliens from the country, but what you're saying is they if they would ratchet up the prosecutions on the crimes associated with illegal immigration, not even so much enforcing immigration law, which I think we should do. I think we do need to challenge U.S. v. Arizona. Could very well be there's enough votes to go in the other direction because it's a different makeup of the Supreme Court. Um, but even without that, there's, like you mentioned, ID theft and things like that that aren't technically immigration violations. They're just associated with them. So you can make it dissuade them from from going there you also brought up an interesting idea when we spoke last about how they can't deport them but they can maybe leverage deportations without dealing with the feds who will just do catch and release could you describe that a little bit yes that's that's right um it's true that states cannot um formally remove or deport illegal aliens from the state even if they've committed crime that's uh something only the federal government can do but um, a state can um, provide incentives for an illegal alien to leave on their own. Um, it's kind of a diversion program. You know, if, if they're being prosecuted for, you know, any, you know, all manner of state crimes like driving without a license, identity theft, things that they can be prosecuted for, um, um, they're, you know, they can be allowed to take a flight home instead of, you know, sit for six months or more in the county jail, uh, because that's not why these illegal aliens came here. They came to work. Yeah. And, you know, if they are faced with the threat of uh, doing time versus returning home, they're going to uh, willingly go home as a way to avoid um, doing, you know, sitting in jail and, you know, and this would be a legitimate way to reduce the population and um, without actually having to wait for the federal government to formally, you know, to let wow. them go through immigration court, um, you know, wait years for an immigration hearing and then skip out on their deportation. The, the state can say, look, um, it's your choice. Be prosecuted for ID theft. Or go home on your own. And if you're ever caught back in our state, then you are going to do that time. That's the kind of thing that works. It's been tried before. Uh, I'm not talking about doing it with rapists or murderers, but with lower level offenders, nonviolent. You know, I think that's a good way to approach it. And it would not run afoul of, you know, trying to, you know, usurp the authority of the federal government. Um, but it is using state authority in an effective way. Um, and, and, you know, and again, um, cracking down on the employers is very, very important as well. And that is not solely a federal responsibility. States can do that, too. I, I love your idea. It's not just the deterrent of going after the, the smuggling, the ID theft, and, and all these other crimes that they tend to commit in order to facilitate their lifestyle. But it's that then you go the next step and say, all right, you know, obviously you're not going to lock up people for too long for things like that, but they don't want to be locked up at all. 
Right. But you can't deport them. So you say, okay, but if you leave, then we won't prosecute you. Kind of like you have drug diversion courts, immigration diversion courts, but you don't call it that, you know, so you don't you don't maybe run afoul of these stupid lawsuits where you're leveraging legitimate state laws and you make a deal. And you say, all right, you could leave. Um, right, it's like a plea deal. Um, it's, a, you know, conditions on a plea deal. Exactly. And I think that's how we need to leverage it to get around the feds, because right now the problem is that you know, it used to be under Trump, you had the sanctuary cities, they wouldn't turn over the criminal aliens. Now we have the opposite problem, you get a criminal alien, and you give you can give them over to the feds, and often they won't get deported. So this is definitely a better way of doing that. And I think this is what we need to start pushing in the states. Uh, we t- t- Time is certainly of the essence. Now, obviously, we do have the presidential candidates. Uh, we talked a little bit on the show about Florida Governor DeSantis's plan yesterday. Have you gotten a chance to look it over, and do you have any thoughts on it? I have, and and I think it's an excellent plan. And, you know, the fact that he's picking the immigration issue and border security as one of the very first things that he wants to talk about and give a detailed plan on shows that he's really serious about that and understands the crisis that we are in uh, and how much Americans want him or somebody to address this. So it's it's good that he's stepping in in this way. Um, it's, you know, it's a really pretty detailed plan. A lot of it can be done through executive action, but also, you know, he indicates that he knows he needs to work with Congress on some things like reforming the asylum system and, you know, getting some money for the immigration agencies to do their job. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, so I, I'm very impressed by it. I wish it had a little more attention um, to the uh, deterring illegal employment and going after employers. But, you know, he certainly uh, knows what needs to be done at the border itself and to address the the problem of drug trafficking that's happening now across our border and really getting tough with the um, the cartels that are operating with such impunity and that are profiting to such an enormous extent because of the business opportunity that the Biden administration has given them. That's not going to be easy to turn around, but uh, I think he has some good ideas for how to do that. Sure. I I never understood that, how cartel operatives, there there would often be videos of armed cartel guys or smugglers going on our side of the border. And it's, you know, somehow that's okay, and we won't even chase them. Uh, yeah. It's just really, really bizarre. We won't chase them across the border. And I love how he said, you know, because if you have a bunch of guys belligerents coming across our border armed, and then they step on the other side, right now CBP's policy is they won't touch them. But no, we should yeah. come grab them uh, on Absolutely. the other side. And I love how he said we need to operate on the other side. I also like the state enforcement. So, yeah, he didn't go so much into interior enforcement of employment, but he's done that as a governor. So I think he kind of understands the state's roles and made it very clear he's going to have full deputizing the states to to make it unambiguous in statute. Um, One of the things he did. And that's important. um, If I could just say, no matter who is in the White House, there are never going to be enough resources in the federal agencies to address yes. this problem on their own. So the states need to use these authorities, even if, you know, we have a president who has the best um, federal immigration policy. The problem is just too big. And so the states really have to step up and be force multipliers 
um, yep. and, and come up with innovative ideas as well. And, and I think, you know, that is important no matter who is in the White House. No, it, it's, it's a really salient because there's something like only a 5,000 ERO agents, and that's about a fourth of the size of the NYPD, and that's for a national purview. Um, you know these numbers better than I do. Is that We have something like we have several million just criminal aliens already identified and targeted by ICE for removal but still remain at large in the country, right? That's right. Um, there are about uh, 2 million criminal aliens who have been – who have a criminal history and most of them are still at large um removals of criminal aliens under biden's policies have been cut in half and you know they talk about how and the supreme court some you know justice kavanaugh really bought into this about now oh we can't tell the feds you know who to arrest this is about actually not um following the mandates that Congress has put on the federal agency about who must be put into deportation proceedings. Yeah, they, you know, they're all, ICE has always had almost all of its workload as criminal aliens. So when you cut the number of removals, you're cutting the number of criminal removals by definition. And this is causing huge public safety problems and really undermining Congress's authority to set our immigration policy. So that, that was kind of a shocking decision in a way. Just a couple of minutes here. There's the other half of the border. So people jump the border. But then there's obviously we have tons of visa programs where we don't enforce the terms and duration of the visa. You you, you wrote a report and it's at, at CIS. Folks could, could follow your work there, your latest column on visa overstays. Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of the scope and trend of the problem and what needs to be done about it? Well, um, a lot of people don't realize that as probably about 40% of illegal immigrants did not cross the border illegally, but came in on a legal visa. And um, they're given um, a a time period that they can stay, which I believe is too long (laughs) from the get-go, but they, you know, an enormous number of people overstay their visas every year. And in 2022, uh, according to the latest overstay report put out by the Department of Homeland Security, more than 850,000 foreign visitors overstayed their um, visa or their permission to enter. It's a huge amount, and it is, it's the highest number in history, and it's double the overstay rate that we had before the Biden administration. Um, and it's all kinds of visas. The, the worst category is regular short-term visitors. And a lot of the numbers are coming from Venezuelans who've been enticed to come Ooh. here on a given a visa because the Biden administration has said, if you can get to the United States, you'll be given temporary protected status and a work permit. So surprised that a lot are coming. Those who can afford it are getting a visa and consular officers are approving these visas, even though they know that there's almost no Whoa. chance that they're going back. So I want so, people to understand what you're saying here. You're not even talking about, OK, you, you somehow come on vacation, you overstay, which is kind of hard to do because how long is the vacation already? But or like a student who needed to complete another semester or something and didn't bother, you know, renewing it or whatever it was. You're saying they're largely coming from the countries of origin of the border crossers, right, that 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 are yeah. e- exiting the country in mass. 
And in the case the, of Venezuelans, yeah. yes. Yeah, Venezuela. And they know this is happening. State Department knows this. And so it's like another kind of avenue. So we talked about them routing people from between the ports to the ports, giving them stuff. But another thing is prima facie mass issuance of temporary visas to places that they know are essentially being used as, as mills for illegal immigration. Exactly. 94% of the Venezuelans who entered on a short-term visa in 2022 overstayed. <laughs> Why are they still issuing? I mean, this is, this is literally, you know, looking the other way at their responsibilities under the law and, you know, deliberately opening up this pathway for people they know are going to overstay and they know that they're going to give them a work permit. It's, it's such abuse of authority um, that, you know, it's, it's really mind boggling, but, you know, they're coming from other, you know, there are countries like, for example, Libya and Somalia and Chad and all these other countries that, you know, where most of the people overstay as well. It's just, the numbers aren't very large. The ones to be concerned about are, for example, um, student visas. The Chinese foreign students have, Chinese university students have a, um, a large overstay rate. And, you know, we have real security concerns about who some of these students are and what they're doing here. Um, there are a lot of people who get work visas who overstay. Um, not only um, um farm workers and unskilled labor, but even the white collar visa workers overstay a lot. Even people in the visa waiver program that who don't have to get a visa to come here, the number from Spain was really high in 2022. So it's, you know, it's all kinds of them. And part of this is a consequence of not having good interior enforcement. And it's too easy for illegal aliens to get a job. But part of it is just because the State Department is too lax in its approvals for these visas. So there's a lot that can be done here. Um, and, you know, I'd like to see Congress start cracking down on that. And certainly um, the next president can do so as well. No, obviously, I definitely want to hear them talk about this 365,000, you know, F visas to Chinese nationals every year. I just I never understood that. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's too many. It's, you know, e- even good people. Um, it was 9,000 people in one year, 9,000 from China who came in on student visas and overseas. Yeah, and, 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 and what my point is, even if you're a good guy, you know, you want to kind of come to America, but your family is there, China could use it as a tool for espionage and threaten that individual. We're never at war with a country and then just bring in endless amounts from that very country when we're having problems with it. But but again, you know, that's what it is. We have a heavy handed, tyrannical government on the people. The FBI certainly will uh, come after us if we say things they don't like. But then somehow what a country really is tasked with doing from day one, um, enforcing its sovereignty from external threats, uh, you know, we don't we don't see that. So, again, I wanted to give people a sense so that that the border, you know, it's, it's not just the border. It's just our whole mentality of appreciating and respecting and believing in our own sovereignty, our own right to sovereignty, more than any kind of logistical thing, this number of border agents, this size border wall. It's just believing that you have a right to sovereignty, and clearly our government doesn't, and that's what needs to change. I really appreciate your work. Where could people find more about your your day-to-day work? 
everything we do is on our website at cis.org. Uh, we have reports, we have podcasts, uh, videos, and so on. So I hope people will check it out. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for your presentation. We'll talk to you very soon. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. Remember, you know, organized crime can only persist with political protection. And at the end of the day, our government and the masters of the universe want this. They want it on purpose. Um, and, and also, like, you listen to what she was saying about Jessica, her, her whole thing with visa overstays. I don't want to hear about our military and a threat from China. And we need $3 trillion more spending on the military until you stop letting them in your own door. The main warfare we have nowadays is asymmetric warfare. And immigration, uncontrolled immigration and visas, that is the biggest vulnerability. And it's always been the biggest vulnerability. The 9-11 Commission said that that that, that should be the cornerstone of anti-terrorism policy. Um, but, of course, we know why the masters of the universe still want this. So there's a lot more on that. But I think the bigger point she's mentioning is that, look, there is a lot states can be doing. And I think that really needs to be what we're pushing uh, as of now. There's a bunch of other news I didn't have time for. There's a Montana rhino getting in, running against Matt Rosendale. And he's going to have a bunch of backing from McConnell and then McCarthy and the establishment and Steve Daines and possibly Trump. So here, here, it, here we are. We're going backwards, not forwards. On that, there's other stuff on Ukraine, on energy, on medical freedom and vaccines. Tomorrow we'll have a kind of an update on CDC and a bunch of vaccines they're pushing on us with Dr. Dr. Meryl Nass. Let me know your questions for her at danielhorowitz at startmail.com. If you like this show, you can give us a five-star rating on iTunes. If not, well, I guess there's one star. Um, please leave a comment as well so it gets into the algorithm. Let me know what other things you feel we're missing that are existential threats, as if we don't have enough. But here we are, Stolen Sovereignty. The book is actually still available. It's, it's still relevant. When I wrote it in 2015, it's even more relevant today. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. 